Most gracious Heavenly Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Be present with us. Dwell among us. Shine your light into our darkness that we may see and know and love you for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, let's take a moment to read through John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness uh, about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Far from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and the truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. When Christine and I first got to know each other, um, around January, February of 2003, shortly thereafter, we went on a mission trip together, and we spent the summer of 2003 in Keswick, England, which is in the Lake District, one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, we could not help but fall in love that summer, um, and, and as, as we were there, and then came back to Columbia, we spent more and more time with each other. We talked more and more. We, be, we began to know each other's nature, and in knowing each other's nature, we began to love each other more. And as we loved each other more, we desired to know more about the other. And uh, now, a number of years later, um, here we are with a, with a full quiver and uh, experiencing... Uh, the, the blessings of, of marriage and family. When you dive into the nature of someone, you learn to love them. As you learn to love them, you desire to dive into that nature 
even more. And that's where we kick off in the book of John. See, John, the book of John is different from the other gospel accounts. It, it is a gospel account, but, but Matthew and Luke, they kick off with genealogy. They start with history. Uh, Mark skips all of that and gets right to the good stuff, right? It, it starts with the ministry of Jesus. Well, those are the synoptic Gospels. Now, John is written in harmony with those Gospels. The, the book of John, the focus of the book of John is really the nature of our triune God. And so, rather than starting with genealogy, rather than starting with certain acts of God, rather than focusing on miracles, in the, in the book of John there are eight um, um, miracles, but he, he even calls seven of them signs, not miracles. Um, rather than starting with parables, or focusing on those, he starts with the very nature of God and who God is, rather than merely what, uh, what Jesus has done. Let me give you a moment of background about the, what was going on at the time uh, that, that this was written, who the author is and when it was written, because I think this helps us understand why John is using uh, these words like word and flesh and light and dwelt. John is the author. This is, this is John, the the. the, the brother of James, um, of, um, of, of, of Zebedee, uh, Matthew 4.22, they, they, left, they left their boat and father with servants and, and left to follow Jesus. Uh, John, throughout this book, expresses a personality and, and sense of humor. Um, he even records um, forever in memorial as inspired by the Holy Spirit, he, he records winning a foot race with Peter um, in, in chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. Um, it was written somewhere around the, the 80s or 90s, um, not, not the big hair 80s, but uh, very, very early on, um, uh, year 80, 90 AD, somewhere around there. It was written later than the other gospel accounts. To put it into perspective, the Pauline epistles start around 51 A.D., so, so we're talking 30, 40 years after the church has begun to be established. And I think that's important for us to know because already there was mystery and there was mythology that had began to infiltrate the teachings of the church. And so John is looking at the heresies of the day and, and, and mooring our theology in orthodox teaching on the very nature of God. And that's no different 
than what we need today. Uh, heresy infiltrates our lives on a daily basis, and we need to be moored back to simple questions. Who is Jesus, and who are we in response to that? The, I'll give you a spoiler alert here. The, the whole reason that this was written is found in um, John chapter 20, verse verse 31, where it says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So there's your agenda. This is written so that you would know Jesus. So in knowing Jesus, we begin in John 1, 1. We begin not in time, but we begin in eternity. And this is perhaps the most important theology expressed in the, in the New Testament. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of the major translations of our Scripture in the English language translate this the exact same way. This is foundational orthodox theology. And if you're a little off on this, you're going to be way off on salvation. You're going to be way off on sanctification. You're going to be way off in what it means to live for Jesus on a day-to-day basis. Because this truly is a point of origin for sound theology and understanding who God is. A slight misinterpretation of this verse leads to the establishment of a cult. In the beginning is where it starts. Hopefully that phrase sounds familiar to you. It should sound a lot like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This phrase, in the beginning, this is... um, this is a direct reference to Genesis 1.1. Um, you may have heard of the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language of the 3rd through 1st century B.C. So the Old Testament put into Greek just prior to John being written. And the Greek phrase used for Genesis 1-1 is the exact same that that we see here for John 1-1. In the beginning. Let's take a moment to look at the Word. Our reference to Jesus, our Savior. In the beginning was the Word. The Greek word lagos is the word is, is the Greek word for what we see as the Word. This is where we get logic and reason from. Now going back in time to the Jewish reader, this, this word is a reference to, to creation and spoken existence. That, that words were spoken and the earth was created. It's put in the context of Genesis 1.1 and the Jewish reader would see this as a reference to creation. Meanwhile, the Gentile reader would see this as a reference to reason, to to logic, 
that because existence itself was by reason. In other words, they would see this as the argument. So whether you were Jewish and it being a reference to creation, or whether you were Gentile and it being a reference to the argument, this, in the beginning was the Word, this is the argument, the logic, the reason for Christianity. And it's not a systematic outline. It's not a series of thoughts. It's not an answer to a group of questions. Instead, in the beginning was the Word. The argument is a person. And it's not just any person. It's God Himself. And this is where we get an understanding, a sound understanding of of the Trinity. And please bear with me for a moment as we dive into some important theology because again, this is about the nature of God and it's revealed in this passage. Uh, In the early church, in the early church, there were many uh, different ideas, many different heresies on the nature of God that began to work their way in so that by the time of uh, 318, the Nicene Creed was put together in response to that. And the Nicene Creed is an explanation of Trinitarian doctrine So whether you're ARP, whether you're PCA, whether you're Baptist, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Eastern Orthodox, whether you're Lutheran or Anglican, you can look at the Nicene Creed and understand the nature of God. That He is in three parts and that Jesus Himself is God. Now why does this matter? Why... Why care about the Trinity? Why jump into uh, what at times might seem like this is about, uh, this is about knowing God, uh, not about knowing some, some argument? Well, I'm going to return for a moment to the summer of 2003 in England. Um, and on this, on this mission trip to Keswick, I stayed in the home of, of a, this wonderful old pastor, Eric Aldrett. And it was, um, it was an incredible time. His, his house, he had, um, he had Hudson Taylor's chess set. He had the, the Spurgeon family's bust of Charles Spurgeon. And he had all these amazing, great works. I'm pretty sure he had a t-shirt that the Apostle Paul wore at some point. That was a joke in case. There we go. Ransom, I feel you, man. Um, as, as I was at this house, I was, I was amazed um, day after day of his rich understanding of theology, um, but also at the ability to ask him questions and, and relate to him. Well, one day, a friend of his visited. And like all good friends... Uh, of someone with a house in a beautiful area. This friend stayed for two weeks. Um, and uh, his, his name was Brian Beardsworth. He was a physician. And he was one of the goofiest, funniest men I have ever met. He was so odd and quirky and delightful. 
he was like a walking Monty Python sketch, one of the clean ones, of course. Um, and as I spent time with him, he would talk about, he would regularly talk about Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he wasn't talking about the, uh, the amazing written works of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor who is often given credit for being the tool that God used to revitalize evangelicalism in England. He was and is and remains uh, through his writings a pretty, pretty amazing um, uh, uh, demonstrator of the gospel. In fact, uh, Ransom has referenced him a number of times as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. Well, back to Back to Dr. Beardsworth. When Dr. Beardsworth would talk about Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Beardsworth didn't talk about his writings. Dr. Beardsworth actually talked about him and told funny stories about him. He talked about the personality of Martin Lloyd-Jones, about different encounters with him. So after, after Dr. Beardsworth had overstayed his welcome by approximately two weeks uh, and left, the, the Aldrett house, I was talking with Pastor Aldrett, and, and, and I was talking about how funny, how funny Dr. Beardsworth was. Um, it, honestly, it bothered others how much I laughed at him, because then it egged him on to, to, to even tell more, and he had an audience in me at all times. And uh, sort of the more reserved English gentlemen around me would roll their eyes, and I would just laugh. And so he would lay it on heavier. And I, I asked Pastor Aldrich, I said, now he talked as if he knew Martin Lloyd-Jones. What is the story there? And uh, Pastor Aldrich said, ah, they were roommates in med school. They remained very flip close friends all of their lives. And then Dr. Beardsworth served as an elder at Westminster Chapel in London, where, of course, Martin Lloyd-Jones was the senior minister. And the light switch flipped for me. And it, and it opened my eyes to all of these funny, quirky stories I had just heard, because this was someone who knew Martin Lloyd-Jones' very nature and talked about him as a person, not as a set of theological ideas, as, as we are tempted to do as we read the writings of others. This, this is someone who knew him and knew him well and loved him and was loved by him. And the fact that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones could be friends with a man like Dr. Brian Beardsworth gives such an enlightening understanding of his own personality. And I'll say I learned more from spending some time with Dr. Beardsworth about who Martin Lloyd-Jones is than I think I ever have in, uh, in, in reading his writings. And it's because they were friends and Dr. Beardsworth knew his nature. So, so why does this whole business about the Trinity matter? Uh, why, why start with the nature of God? And I think, I think we know 
that when we know who He is, when we know who God is, when we know about His person, when we know His very nature, then we can grow in our love for Him. And as we grow in our love for Him, we will desire more and more to know about that nature of God so that when we, so that when we read the Great Commission... And we see that God tells us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We know that nature, that Trinitarian nature of our Lord. Or when we we see reference in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14 at the end, and Paul says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, God, God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We know the nature of what that means. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, where Peter says he's an apostle of Jesus according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We know the very nature and person of whom that is speaking. And it's not a, simply a set of theological ideas and principles, but it's what makes up someone that we love who loves us dearly. Speaking of that love, for us, the Word became flesh. Now this is in verse 14. God became flesh. Flesh is vulnerable. It is killable. Just as we read in our call to worship and just as we read in our confession of sin and our insurance of pardon, God heard the cries of His children and came down knowing that it would cost Him. He experienced abandonment. God God the Son, Jesus Christ, experienced abandonment in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's something that we have not even experienced. He experienced humanity and took on humanity. He became vulnerable. Skipping to verses 7-9, through nine, he's, he's the light. The, the, the enlightenment or reason would be the understanding that, that would have been had for this at the time it, it was spoken, at least to the Gentiles. But when Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I'm the light of the world, the, the light of the world wants to be in relationship with you. While, while we want answers to questions, we want that outline of, of, of theology, of doctrine that, that answers all the questions we could possibly have, this passage says, no, 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 no. Jesus came, God came to offer Him so much more than answers to your questions. He came to offer Himself to be flesh, to be the light, and finally, to dwell among you. Now, creation, the creation account of light and darkness, where, where, where God speaks light into darkness, and, and we, see, we see Jesus by, by nature, where he says, I am the light of the world here um, uh, in, in the book of John. As we know about his nature of who he is, 
That's no different than some of the more complex doctrines that we look at in the Scripture, whether, whether it's justification. That's God speaking light into darkness. We even sing about it in some of our hymns. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. That's God speaking light into our darkness. And it is His nature is consistent with who He is. In verse 14, He dwelt among us. Now going back to the Old Testament and the Septuagint, there was a word for God's dwelling place among men, and it was the tabernacle. This word that's used here in John 1 turns that noun into a verb and says that God tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. So that when you see this again in Revelation 21, that behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man, and He shall be with you, and you shall be His people. The Almighty shall dwell with you and wipe every tear from your eyes, and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, and no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. But He's seated on the throne and making all things new. That is God dwelling with you. That is God tabernacling with you. And the same God who is present with Israel by means of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the same God who will return and make all things new and make us His dwelling place, is yet here having dwelt among us. I think we struggle with God dwelling among us because I think at times we are all closet deists. I think, what I mean by that is I think we sort of default at times to this position that, that God sets certain things in motion, that, that God remains distant, and that salvation is some sort of cosmic handout where we uh, for now have this transaction and maybe one day we get to be with Jesus. But the one day that you get to be with Jesus, brothers and sisters, please understand that that begins now. That that begins now. That, that Jesus, the argument, the Word, the Lagos, became flesh, became human, and tabernacled and dwelt among us to shine light into darkness. So what does this mean for the skeptic, for the person who asks why. Well, maybe this means that the skeptic, instead of for a moment asking why, needs to ask the question, who? Because the argument for Christianity is a person. It's not an outline. Look at Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. While breathing murderous threats, the Lord appears to him, blinds him, knocks him off of his horse, and what's, what's Paul's response? It's who are you, Lord? It, not, not what, not why. Who are you, Lord? So instead of asking the question why, if you're a skeptic, please ask the question who. What does this mean for the new believer? I think for the new believer, God's presence, His dwelling among you, His becoming flesh, 
Um, you might know this best of all of us in this room. And what does this mean for the one who's, who's been a believer for a long time? Well, I think we have to remind ourselves of God's presence in our lives. We all, we all struggle with this. And yet, it's very simple. Be in the Word. Be in prayer. Be in a church that preaches the Gospel. And be in fellowship with other believers. Or put in another way, know the nature of God and grow to love Him more. And as you grow to love Him more, dive more into the nature of God. And as you do so, grow to love Him more. Being a dad has changed the way I pray on a daily basis. And uh, as, as, as I've grown as a dad, um, there's one refrain that I come back to for my kids pretty much every night. As, as I'm praying with them, as I'm praying for them, it's that, Lord, I, I pray that they would know and love You more and more each day. Know Jesus and love Him more and more each day. And the Jesus who is the Word, the argument, who, is, who became flesh, who is the light shining into, into darkness, is dwelling among us. Know and love Him more and more each day. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful to look at Your Word this morning. We pray that we would know You. We pray that we would love You more and more each day. We pray all these things in the name of Christ and for the sake of His kingdom. Amen.